Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, now offering an online master's degree in teaching. A state license can be earned after the first summer semester with an opportunity to teach grades 7 through 12. The application deadline is March 1st. More information at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the family of Emmett Till is renewing their call for justice after Till's original accuser changes her story. Mamie forgave her. There's a video on our YouTube channel of her very last public appearance before she died where she speaks of forgiveness and she says that she forgave Emmett's murderers and Carolyn Bryant because if she did not, it would have destroyed her. And after StoryCorps, we close out American Heart Month by learning why more Mississippians born with heart defects are actually living into adulthood. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The family of Emmett Till, the African-American teen from Chicago who was murdered more than 60 years ago in LaFleur County, wants the state attorney general to reopen the case. In the summer of 1955, Carolyn Bryant accused 14-year-old Emmett Till of whistling at her and propositioning her. Till was lynched and the two white men charged with his murder were acquitted. The events helped spark the civil rights movement. Sixty years later, a new book now says Bryant admits she lied about the encounter. Erica Gordon-Taylor is Emmett Till's cousin and director of the Memorial Foundation for Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley. She tells our Mark Rigsby more about her late cousin, whom she never met. He was just a real playful and, and, and jolly child, from what I was told. You know, Mamie has a book that she wrote right before she died. But, she, you know, she always said they were more like brother and sister because he was an only child. And you said that you actually lived with her for many years? Yes, yes. From six months old, for many years I lived with Mamie while my mom went to school. I'm sure she had many, many stories about Emmett. What would she say to you about what happened to Emmett and how she dealt with that? It was only God that helped her deal with that. I heard her tell the story so many times traveling with her 
And I heard her speak to so many people and repeatedly tell people what happened. And I watched her cry repeatedly. Even at home, I watched her cry sometimes. Mamie dealt with it spiritually. We come from a very deeply rooted Christian background. And it was the spirit of the Lord, is what she would say, that lifted her up out of her bed and gave her the strength to deal with and to fight like she did in 1955 because she wanted justice for Emmett. What do you think she would think about the main witness testimony in this case turn out to be a lie and the person actually confessed that they did, did not tell the truth? Well, she already knew she lied. Simeon and Wheeler were there. So we all knew it was a lie. But Mamie forgave her. There's a video on our YouTube channel, her very last public appearance before she died, where she speaks of forgiveness. And she says that she forgave Emmett's murderers and Carolyn Bryant because if she did not, it would have destroyed her. So I think that to hear her recant that it would have given her an insurmountable about amount of peace to hear her say that, even though she knew the truth. She still would want justice. She still would want her to pay for what she did. Well, let's talk about justice. Does the family believe that the attorney general of Mississippi should open an investigation, reopen the case, and provide the justice that the family is seeking against Miss Bryant. She should not get off. She should not receive immunity. If you had a message for her directly, what would you tell her? I would say it's been long enough. She needs to just, she's already made a statement. She might as well come out of hiding and just let's get a resolve. You know, especially if nothing's going to happen to her, for our family alone, give my family some peace. At least if, you, if she finds out nothing can be done to her, we can't go to jail, we can't convict her, we can't do anything, at least write down or come out and tell the whole story to at least those that went through it. She doesn't have to tell it to the world if she doesn't want to. But the family has questions. And I'm, and I'm not talking about the generational family. I'm not talking about me or my cousins. I'm talking about those who live through it. It's time. She's had a fruitful life. She's got grandkids. She's been married twice. You know, she's... And look at Mamie's, you know, life and what she deprived her of from lying. If I was her, I don't see how she's living in peace. I just don't know. I don't see how she has it. Do you think ultimately there will be justice? I'm optimistic that there will be. And justice comes in many forms. What form would you like it to come in? Oh, I would like for her to go to jail. I would like for it to be judicial justice. Is the family also seeking an apology from her? I don't think an apology at this point matters. Erica Gordon-Taylor. Mark Rigsby also caught up with Representative Alice Clark, a Democrat from Jackson. She remembers when Till was killed. I was a teenager when it happened, so it was a long time ago. 
And I remember how afraid all of the young mothers were and how the young children were afraid to go out because they were afraid they were going to get beat up and thrown into a lake. But it's just good that that the uh, young lady has admitted that she didn't tell the truth. And as a matter of fact, my mom and my dad always told me that they didn't believe that that young man, he hadn't even been here long enough to even know about doing anything like that. A 14-year-old boy uh, just getting here, and we just couldn't believe or see anything happening like that. But it's really, really good that it will be hopefully revived or what we talk about, the cold cases. We hope that this will case will no longer be, be cold and somebody will decide that it's very important that we do something about it. Do you believe the Attorney General should open an investigation into the new confession? And should there be some type of an apology made? And who should make it and who should it go to? I definitely think it should be opened. And I think that it should go to the family. But I would like to see more than just an apology. I think we need to look at it and see what needs to be done based on what was actually done. Um, and based on that, that's what I think, you know, we should we should do that. And yes, the uh, Attorney General definitely needs to look into it, in my opinion. On a lawmaker level, is there anything that the legislature could do to discuss this issue and find some closure here? I'm sure we could, but I'm not sure exactly what could be done. But with all of the lawyers that we have and all of the uh, astute people that we have in the legislature, I'm sure we could look at it and see what can be done and what will rightfully be done. And we always run around about we're such a religious state. And if we're such a religious state, this is definitely something we good Christians should look at. Representative Alice Clark talking with MPB's Mark Rigsby. Coming up, we close out American Heart Month by learning why more Mississippians born with heart defects are living into adulthood. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. You in a court of law. Hi, I'm Sharita Brent. On In Legal Terms, the focus is always you and your rights. From Miranda rights to civil rights, our legal experts will inform you of your right to do or not to do according to the law. Join us Tuesday mornings at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPV Think Radio. Tonight, President Donald Trump will address a joint session of Congress to lay out his agenda for the coming year. NPR will be there live, carrying his speech and with in-depth analysis and reaction to the address, including the Democrats' response to the president's speech. I'm Audie Cornish. Join us for complete coverage from NPR News. Tonight at 8 on MPB Think Radio. It's the new administration's first 100 days, and the news is coming fast. Protesters arrived here. Keystone XL pipeline. The Affordable Care Act. New refugee Obamacare. admissions for 100. All things considered, we'll be here to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. 
As a chaplain, Dr. Ruth Black knew all too well that poignant experiences can come in all shapes and sizes, both good and bad. In her visit to the StoryCorps mobile tour, she tells her son Carl Black about some of those experiences. What would you say has been the happiest moment of your life? Oh, gosh, there have been so many happy moments of my life. One I remember was the first time I ever laid eyes on you when your dad and I both managed to see you born. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. And then when I realized you actually knew how to eat, (laughs) didn't have to be taught, I thought, what a smart baby. (laughs) But that was a hugely important and happy moment for me. What about the saddest moment of your life? I think the saddest moment of my life was when my mother died. That was a great loss for me because she not only was a good person to know, but she carried great, huge chapters of my life in her memory and her stories. So so I lost not just a wonderful person, but I lost a source of information for me. I was with her the day before she died. I had no idea she was going to die the next day. But I asked her one more time. I said, do you still want me to do your funeral? Do you still want me to preach at your funeral service? She said, absolutely. She died the next day. It was too soon for me to even think about forgetting the promise I had made. So that whole sequence was sad, but it was also restorative for me, being able to remember much of her life by preaching at her funeral. Saddest, happiest. What is your most vivid memory of your mother? I've thought about that because there's so many different ways I remember her. I remember her in the classroom. She was a fantastic teacher, first grade teacher. I remember her playing the violin because she would practice the violin at home the whole time I was growing up. So I was used to thinking everybody had a violin solo playing for them in the morning. Oh, and I do remember her driving her car across the front lawn of All Saints Church (laughs) toward the end of her life. I remember funny things that she did as well. Did you ask her why she drove her car across the front lawn? Oh, yes. She and her sister were there. They were coming to the service because I was supposed to be preaching that day at that church. They didn't see the driveway. They just saw this wonderful, great expanse of green, and off they went. Nothing usually held them back from whatever they were intent on doing. So that's that's why she did it. It was uh, It was open. There were no cars in front of her, and across the lawn she went. What was it like teaching death and grief in college at the same time your mother died, even the same day? It was that really she died? it was really ironic. I taught a class there once a week and at that particular time I was teaching it in my house. And I had gone by to check on mother because she was not doing very well and not feeling very well and when I went by I realized somebody had called an ambulance to take her to the hospital, and I was headed back to my house to teach my class. And I had invited two wonderful physicians to come and and be a part of that class that night, two pediatric oncologists. And when they got to my door, 
I said, I think my mother is dying. I may have to get up and leave the class in the middle of it. Can you just carry it on for me? And they said, yes. It was a very strange thing for me to go back and tell the class that I thought my mother was coming to the end of her life. And I'd done my best to try to make the class friendly enough for them to know that was a natural part of life, the ending of life, just like the ending of a book. But I remember thinking, oh, I just would like to get up and go in another room and weep because I'm not ready to say goodbye. It was a very strange feeling to be dealing with the reality of death while I was talking about and working with my students about the theories of death and grief. It was strange. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we highlight Medgar Wiley Evers. As a lifelong Mississippian, Medgar Evers wanted equality for all of its citizens. Becoming an NAACP field secretary in 1954, he was moving his vision in Jackson and around the entire state. Becoming a real key in the desegregation of Ole Miss, Medgar Evers was a real change agent until his assassination in 1963. We salute Medgar Evers for his vision. You can kill a man, but you cannot kill an idea. This has been MPB's Moments in Black History. Mississippi Public Broadcasting presents Melvin Williams' Down Home Gospel. With this show, Melvin Williams' Down Home Gospel, I'm kind of going to take you on a little journey. You're going to get vintage, traditional gospel music right here on MPB. Premiering March 4th at 6 p.m. on MPB Television. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi babies born with heart defects are more likely to live to adulthood than 40 years ago. Nearly 90% of babies born with congenital heart defects will survive, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Only two-thirds survived between 1979 and 1993. That's a big increase, says Dr. Mike McMullen of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He joins us to talk about congenital heart disease and why outcomes are better for some of the tiniest patients. Congenital heart disease is disease in the heart that is present at birth and on from there. And almost one in every 100 live births have a heart defect. So it makes it far and away the most common type of birth defect, and it has far and away the most common cause of deaths in the first year of life. We have an excellent pediatric cardiology program here as well as a good heart surgery program here, but we have just established the adult congenital heart program. We have one of only seven accredited in the country along with the likes of Harvard and Emory and Stanford and Ohio State. So we're very proud of that. 
but it's been great to be able to take care of these patients because with the improvements in technology and treatment for these patients, 90% of children are now living into adulthood, and therefore we have a growing patient population of heart patients who are living longer, feeling better, holding down jobs, doing all the activities that they want to do, having children of their own, and it's just fabulous. So this is one area where we want actually heart patients to increase in number rather than decrease in number as we take care of these patients. So this is something that is present from birth. Is it detected then? Is it detected automatically by the screenings that babies typically undergo when they're born? Great question. So a lot of the times, particularly the severe defects, are detected at birth. So those who have blue babies. And now it's routine to do oxygen saturation monitoring on babies, which is a new finding. And we have had babies who were picked up to have heart disease who would not otherwise have been picked up. Obviously, they look for heart murmurs at birth, which can be a clue as well. But there's a large number of patients that are not picked up at birth, the defects that are less severe, who don't have low oxygen levels, who may not present until childhood, teenage years. And we even have, have many, particularly in this state, that don't present until they are adults. You talked about the high percentage of congenital heart disease patients that are living into adulthood. How does that number, was it 90%? It was not, It is 90% now with our current technology. That's exactly right. How, a huge improvement. How does that number compare with what it has been in years past? So it, it has grown by leaps and bounds. Just 30 years ago, there were more children in our country who had congenital heart disease than adults. But now we actually have more adults who have congenital heart disease than children because these patients are living longer and doing better. And not only are they living longer, but they are having better, healthier, full lives. Patients who were born with really severe defects, a single pumping chamber of the heart, a few years ago this was a death sentence. And now we are seeing 20-year-olds who have survived and done extremely well with just a single pumping chamber. So it's amazing to see what our surgeons and our pediatric cardiology colleagues can do. What are the characteristics of congenital heart disease in terms of how might people recognize that they know somebody who has this or, or what would they be familiar with that's associated with congenital heart disease? If you're looking at it in others, you know, you can sometimes tell when people have a scar on their chest at a young age. Sometimes there are some syndromes that go along with congenital heart disease. We take care of a lot of Down syndrome patients, and I just love that. Uh, my sister had Down syndrome when I was growing up, and she died from heart disease. So, you know, we have a lot of patients that fall into that category. By the same token, it may be patients who are found to have a heart murmur later in life or who are found to have high blood pressure at a very young age that you wouldn't expect, and so therefore they may have a narrowing of their aorta that we may pick up. So there are a lot of different ways that you can do it, but most of them, you don't even know. For example, Sean White, the Olympic gold medalist snowboarder, had tetralogy of below, a very complicated congenital heart disease for which he underwent open heart surgery, and he's up there doing flips on snowboards with no abandon. So you cannot tell on a lot of these patients that they ever had congenital heart disease, at least not without seeing a chest scar. How often is it that once the underlying issue is resolved that people go through the rest of their life without continuous heart issues or heart problems, or is that kind of always present with them? The Adult Congenital Heart Association, the ACHA, their motto for this Heart Awareness Month is every adult with congenital heart disease was once a child with congenital heart disease. And they're saying that so that you realize that it is a lifelong disease process. 
So for the very simple hole in the heart that was closed with no residual defect, those patients often do well without any follow-up. But for the majority of patients who have congenital heart disease, they will need some form of lifelong follow-up. And the more severe the disease, the more closely they'll need to be followed. We've been speaking with Dr. Mike McMullen, who's a professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and the director of the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program there. Dr. McMullen, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Ezra. I really enjoyed it. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, in legal terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app in any mobile store. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Public Broadcasting presents Melvin Williams' Down Home Gospel. With this show, Melvin Williams' Down Home Gospel, I'm kind of going to take you on a little journey. You're going to get vintage, traditional gospel music right here on MPB. Premiering March 4th at 6 p.m. on MPB Television. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, now offering an online master's degree in teaching. A state.